0: to 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18. We're continuing this series of messages looking at uh, the book of Kings, especially the life of the prophet Elijah. And today we're in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Do you have any page numbers for that? Maybe 375-ish? Someday we'll have all the same pew Bibles. In the church, and we won't have to say ish. Uh, So, in the section just before this, there's a number of things going on. One of the key things to be reminded of in those opening verses is that there's a severe drought going on um, in in Israel, and uh, Jezebel, the queen of Israel, has been persecuting, even killing God's prophets. That's some of the background. And it's kind of been building up to this confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. And this is where it happens, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? They have really great exchanges, these two, throughout Kings. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah replied, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baal's. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring the four hundred fifty prophets of Baal and the four hundred prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Asherah and Baal were kind of like uh, they were kind of a package deal of gods in the ancient world. They they kind of went together. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, "How long will you waver?" Between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let them choose one for themselves. And let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. Notice it's four large jars three times. It's twelve jars, one jar for each tribe of Israel. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. This is the word of the Lord. I've been trying to make the case this summer that really the whole book of Kings has been building up to a critical moment of choice. Today we arrive. Verse 21, Elijah looks at God's people and he lays it just all out there. He he doesn't dress it up. He doesn't make it complicated. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. In other words, make your choice. The whole book of Kings has been building up to this. Really, the whole Bible has been building up to this question. Remember Exodus 20, we looked at this last year, when, when God had just delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, this enormously important moment in their history. One of the first things God does is He gives them the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, make your choice. Or remember Joshua 24. We looked at this earlier in the summer. It's another enormously important moment in the life of God's people. They're about to move into the promised land of Canaan. They've been waiting hundreds of years for this. But before they take the land, Joshua restates their choice. Throw away the gods. Your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and served the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In other words, stop wavering between two opinions. Make your choice. The Bible is not ambiguous on this point. The Bible is really quite black and white. Each person must choose. Will you live for the true God, or will you live for false gods? And every Israelite knew these stories. They knew that there's no middle option. There's no, like, mostly Yahweh and a little bit Baal option. There's no, well, I'll take Yahweh's view of mercy and Baal's view of sex. No, Israel knew there was no middle option. And so when Elijah asked them, how long will you waver between two opinions... This is exactly the kind of question they've been prepared for for hundreds of years. Yet, what's their response? The people said nothing. To be fair, so far as we can tell, Yahweh was unique in this region of the world. So, Yahweh was the only God who asked His people to make a choice like this. He was the only God in the ancient Near East who, who demanded like this kind of total allegiance. None of the other gods really forced their people to choose. They were very 21st century that way. Like, gods like Baal were fine with you worshiping whoever else you wanted. You could sort of find a mix of gods and worldviews that worked for you. right? Uh, the, these ancient cultures weren't big on like absolute truths. It was more like regional truths or local truths. Serve Baal when Baal is convenient... Give a nod to Yahweh when it seems like he's the better bet. But the God of Israel is different than other gods. The God of Israel consistently makes clear with him it's all or nothing. You cannot have it halfway. And the book of Kings has been trying to show what's at stake in this choice. You know, last week we saw what happens when you let in even a little bit of a false god's worldview. Last week, we saw Naboth killed because this Baal-worshiping king couldn't handle someone questioning his Baal worldview assumptions, and because the society that was flirting with Baal couldn't muster the moral courage to stand up for this poor man, Naboth. Last week, we learned that there are consequences to letting even a little bit of Baal worship into your life. And so Elijah's mission throughout Kings is to force God's people to choose, to decide, all or nothing. And chapter 18 is Elijah's attempt to settle the debate once and for all. And I'd say he does quite a good job. You maybe notice he does something rather clever. He he gives the prophets of Baal every advantage in the contest. So the location at Mount Carmel, historians will tell you, this is right near the heart of Baal-worshipping territory, or the choice of animals. He lets the Baal prophets choose the animals. Now, you all probably don't think about animal sacrifice very often, but uh, letting them choose means they could give Elijah a defective animal, right? an animal that the gods would reject. They could sort of sneak him a, a diseased animal or a cursed animal. And finally, even the type of challenge. It's right in Baal's wheelhouse. I mean, Baal's the god of rain. I mean, the guy should know his way around like a lightning bolt or two, right? Elijah gives the prophets of Baal every advantage. He is outnumbered 850 to 1, right? 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. The prophets of Baal have the weight of the entire government behind them. And yet... With every advantage, they are able to do exactly not one thing. The prophets of Baal are humiliated. Their God is a fraud. Meanwhile, what does Elijah do? Well, Elijah makes it as hard for himself as possible. He douses the altar with with water again and again and again. What's he doing here? It's just uh, like a little more clever theater. Just like really turn the knife, an extra sort of layer of humiliation for these prophets? On one level, maybe. I actually think Elijah's doing something else here. So at this point in the story, by the time he asks for the water, Baal is already utterly humiliated. I mean, it's not just that Baal's been shown to be kind of a, a weak god or a pathetic God. He's really been shown to be no God at all. I mean, the text really takes pains. It's not that Baal didn't answer their prayers. It's that there was no answer at all, right? It's not that he's he's a, a bad God. It's that he's nothing. So at this point, Elijah doesn't need to rub it in right? to show the prophets of Baal who's boss. So long as Yahweh does anything, he's going to be way ahead of Baal. And that will be true whether Elijah adds, like, A lot of water, or a little water, or really even no water at all. I mean, the contrast between Yahweh and Baal is going to be abundantly clear. So why add the water? For this, I think it's important to remember the context of the story. This whole section of Kings, remember what's going on. There's a drought, there's a famine. No rain in three years, we learn. In fact, earlier in the chapter, we read that the livestock all across Israel are dying for lack of water. So tell me, when Elijah asks these Israelites in verse 33 to go and gather these big jars of water again and again, enough to douse what is essentially a very large grill and a trench besides, is getting water for something like that? Is that a small thing to ask of them or a big thing to ask of them? It's quite a big thing. You think maybe these Israelites had other ideas of what they'd do with huge jugs of water in the third year of a drought? Like maybe keep their own families alive? At least keep their own animals alive? Do you think people would have been eager, after three years of drought, to take a resource as precious as water, lug it up a mountain, and then just pour it on top of a bunch of rocks? It's a big ask. See, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. I think Elijah asked for water. I think he asked for lots of water, because he's trying to get God's people to understand something about the choice he's asking them to make. You see, Elijah knows that choosing for the living God is not just a matter of, well, I believe that God is more powerful than Baal. You don't need 12 jugs of water to douse this grill to prove that God is more powerful than Baal. Any sign from God under any circumstances would have made Baal look small in comparison. No, you need 12 jugs of water, not to teach the prophets of Baal something. You need 12 jugs of water to teach the people of God something. You need 12 jugs of water to remind God's people that choosing the living God is not just about believing that he's more powerful. Choosing the living God is about trusting that God is about trusting that God even if it costs you. It's about trusting that God even with your life. It's the same thing that happened with the widow of Zarephath we looked at a few weeks ago. Right? Elijah asked this widow to feed him before he feeds herself, even though he knows and she knows she only has enough food for one person. Right? He's not just asking you to believe that Yahweh is better than Baal. He's asking you to trust Yahweh. You know, one of the myths of gods like Baal was that you could serve him uh, without it costing you anything. Right? Baal, Baal just wanted you to be happy. But Elijah's God demanded not just your awe, not just your faith, He wanted your trust. He wanted your life, not part of your life. He wanted the whole thing. And I think that's what the water that's what the water illustrates. I think for Elijah, the water isn't just stage theater. I think it's an invitation for God's people to trust Yahweh, even if it hurts, even if it's costly. And of course they do. They, they gather the water. They pour it out. They they take these steps of faith, really these pours of faith, right? And then Elijah calls on God, and and the rest is history. When the people see how dramatically God shows up, they fall on their faces and they cry, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! It's one of the most decisive moments in Scripture, right? This whole chapter is kind of a way of saying, This is your choice, and your choice is easy. Baal is a fraud, Yahweh is Lord. Point made, we can all go home, right? Except the story's not done, is it? There's one more detail in verse 40 we read this morning. It's another kind of breathtaking detail. Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the valley and slaughtered them there. Hmm. I suspect some of us have been hearing the story of Mount Carmel for a lot of our lives. It's kind of familiar if you've been in church circles for a while. Like, oh yeah, that's the story where God beats Baal real bad. But I imagine that some of you are hearing this story maybe for the first time. And you're just now kind of digesting this verse 40. (laughs) And I imagine maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, Pastor, I know you want me to be wary of the the dangers of worshiping false gods like Baal. But look what happens to the guy who worships your true God. The guy who now single-handedly butchers either 450 or 850 people. It's like, okay, like I get that these false gods have baggage. Right? I, I get that we need to be wary of these false gods. I get that this story is kind of a cautionary tale. But seriously? I mean, killing 850 people, that, that's, not, that's not a punishment. That's a genocide. And for some of you, you're like, this is exactly why I'm not interested in your religion, preacher. Right? Because you can draw a straight line between all this either-or, all-or-nothing, black-or-white thinking that has dominated the book of Kings, you can draw a straight line from that to the kind of moral justification required to slaughter 850 people. Right? It's exactly that kind of reductionist thinking, that kind of all-or-nothing absolutism, that compels a kid on a white supremacist chat room to drive 12 hours to gun down brown-skinned people he thinks are invading El Paso. I mean, how is this different? I mean, I get it, right? Worshiping Baal leads to trouble. It leads to sexual excess and, and moral complacency and bad treatment of the poor. But take a look. I mean, your moral absolutes are at least as scary as all that. It makes you think, surely there is another way to make the point of kings. I mean, I get that the powers of this world, the powers of false gods like Baal, I know that they need to be exposed and I know that they need to be overturned, but surely there's another way to expose the lies of false gods without destroying the people who are taken in by those lies. And if you're like me and you wish that there were another way, I have good news. <laughs> the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Elijah, Jesus Christ is unwavering in reminding people about the cost of discipleship. So he warns that following him without considering the cost, he says it's like trying to build a tower without first making sure you have the money. He, he compares following him to carrying a cross, an instrument of death and torture, right? It's a way of saying, you're going to carry your death with you. He says, if you're not ready to give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. It's very black and white kind of thinking. Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way, he's not a truth, he's not a life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, wide is the way that leads to destruction and many many enter through it, but narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. No one is clearer than Jesus that we must not waver and that we must make our choice. And yet his response to those who do waver, his response to those who are not 100% certain is utterly different from Elijah's. Jesus did not look at those who waver and say, they have fallen short, put them to death. Jesus looked at those who waver, people who, let's be clear, are a lot like you and me. Jesus looked at those who waver and he says, Not, put them to death. He says, put me to death. He said, I get that there are consequences to idolatry. I get that people get hurt. I get that evil cannot go unanswered, so answer it through me. Let the consequences fall on me. Let me take the fall so that the enemies of God can have a chance to go free. See, dear friends of Jesus Christ, we do not live in the shadow of the mountain at Carmel. We live in the shadow of the mountain at Calvary. And we are not the people of Elijah. We're the people of Jesus Christ. And our call is not to punish our enemies. It's to love them. It's not to crush those who persecute us. It's to pray for them. I mean, how do you deal with with the tension of an all-or-nothing God in a world where we feel so tossed from here to there? I think you take that tension on yourself. I mean, you want to throw a wrench in our culture's tendency to turn everyone who disagrees with you into your mortal enemy? Make the defining mark of your life not calling out your enemies. Make the defining mark of your life loving your enemies. Prove the truth of your faith not by shouting them down, but by serving them more. Be like Jesus. God proved himself both trustworthy and powerful, not by sending fire from heaven, but by sending himself. He calls us to consider the cost and to follow him, not under threat of violence, but under the gift of grace. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would convict in our hearts to get off the fence and to find that you are indeed trustworthy. We can trust our whole lives to you. We will not regret it. Lord, we pray that because we are growing in trust of you, we are also able to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, That we are able to lay down our lives, not just for friends, but even for enemies. May that be the hallmark of Christians. May that be what we are known for, the truth embodied in our sacrificial love for others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.